Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. My name is Alden, and I hope you have a happy Advent season. This is a, a month or so where we get to anticipate Christ's return in a, a formal kind of like, yeah, official way where we get to light candles and have readings and stuff and talk about how we're hoping in Christ. So we're going to talk about different themes throughout the next coming month or so. So I hope that's a rich experience for you while you reflect on Jesus' return. For now, we're going to continue our sermon series in Nehemiah chapter 11. And this is, a, again, last time I preached, it was a pretty peculiar text of just names. This is somewhat similar. It's a peculiar text, and we might wonder, what can we get out of a text like this? There's a, a name, the, like a paragraph of peculiar villages at the end. And other than that, it's like a bunch of names here. What can we get out of this? Well, again, I want to encourage us that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and even the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, was given, Timothy tells, uh, Paul says in Timothy, so that we could be made wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So let's dig in, anticipating that we will become wiser for salvation in Christ. Pray with me, please, while we ask God to do that for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is inspired by you, and we thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for Nehemiah chapter 11. I pray that all of us would thank you for Nehemiah chapter 11 at the end of this service, Lord. Um, please speak to us, cut our hearts, convict us of things that we don't yet realize are in this text, Lord. Open our eyes to see what it is that you say. Help us to live it out. Help us to hope in Jesus and in his return above all things. In your name we pray, amen. So let's start off. I invite you to open up your Bibles if you haven't done that yet. I'm going to be going verse by verse in Nehemiah chapter 11, and I'm going to be starting in verse 1. There's Bibles under your seats if you don't have one open yet. But read verse 1 and verse 2 with me here. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns, excuse me, in the other towns. Verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So this is an update from the living situation in Jerusalem that we last read about. We last read about that in chapter 7. And chapter 7, verse 4 says that the city was wide and large. This is talking about Jerusalem, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt, that is, within the city. So that was not ideal. They wanted people to live in the city. That's why they built it, to put people there, right, so they could worship God. But before they could move people in, first, chapter 8 happened, they brought the Bible into the city, and then chapter 9 happened, they confessed their sin in the city, and then chapter 10 happened, they signed a covenant in the city, now, when chapter 7 happened, the city wall was built, but nobody lived there yet. Chapter 8 through 10 happened so that they could be oriented, their whole society could be oriented around God and obedience to Him. The whole city of Jerusalem was oriented around God and obedience to Him. And now they've done that in chapters 8 through 10, people can move in now. They can occupy this empty city. And also, there's a phrase here, it's a holy city, if you see that in verse 1, Jerusalem, the holy city. This is the first time in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that Jerusalem is identified as a holy city. And that's because first they brought the Bible there, and then they confessed their sin there, and then they signed a covenant there to live holy lives. Before people moved in, 
the city wasn't holy because that hadn't happened yet. There were a lot of sins that were left previously unacknowledged and unrepented. So it wasn't holy yet. But now they understand God's law and they have formally determined to obey it together. And that's what makes the city holy. Another thing to note is that those who left the towns that they were staying in were actually leaving their rightful inheritance that they were due. And then they could finally capitalize on it, and now they're being told to leave. I think that's worth us picking up on. Verse 20 clarifies that this is everyone in his inheritance. And so in Joshua, chapters 13 to 21, Israel's inheritance is based on family clan. It's all laid out to different regions that, they're well, that the different tribes can occupy. And so coming back from exile, they would have been excited to finally capitalize on the inheritance that they were promised by God. This was their land, right? They were exiled out of it, but they were coming back now. They were entitled to this. It was their inheritance. Verse 1 tells us that they cast lots to bring out the people from their town. So they were already dwelling there for a little while. They were finally in their inheritance, and then they left it to go to Jerusalem. Imagine this is you. Imagine this is us. Imagine you were born in the exile in Babylon. You've heard about your family inheritance and how it's far away. You've never seen it. You don't, know, you don't really think you ever will. You've heard some cool stories about it in the book of Joshua and the Old Testament, but it's not a reality for you. But then suddenly, you and your family, surprisingly, are welcomed to go and receive that inheritance after all. Suddenly, you're rich. You own all this property. You've lived there now for several years. You get comfortable. You realize you kind of like living in luxury, at least more luxury than exile. <laughs> several years in, though, God tells you, give it up. I want you to move to Jerusalem. Give up that inheritance that I promised you, that you've been enjoying. Plus, I mean, that would be hard, right? Plus, there were no jobs in Jerusalem yet. It's an empty city. It was uninhabited. There was no guarantee of employment. So you're giving up these riches, in a sense, that you've had, and now you're going into emptiness to pioneer something that you're not sure is going to work or how it's going to work or what your lot will be. That's even more of a sacrifice. One question that a text like this begs us to ask is, are we willing to do that? Of course, we might not have to do something exactly like this. I think most of us probably won't. But I imagine some of us probably will. And would we, if that is us, I think this is for all of us to consider, would we be willing to do something like this? Matthew chapter 6, this will be on your screens. Verses 19 and 21 says this. This is Jesus' words. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This text does not mean it's wrong to save money. After all, nine out of ten of the Israelites were called to stay in their inheritance and save that money. But it does mean that if God really is our greatest treasure, we will be willing to give up earthly treasure if God calls us to do that. And when we make sacrifices for God, this is another thing that this text means, when we make those sacrifices which are temporary on earth, we get an eternal reward that we look forward to in heaven. Talk about a hope that we await, right? 
So this text is an invitation, I think, for us to ask ourselves, am I willing to give up anything for God? And maybe you're not. And I think that's important to be honest about that and be real about that, take a real look in the mirror. And if not, why not? How could I change my heart, I think, is a fair prayer that we could ask. How could I change my heart to be more generous toward God? How might you be able to change your heart to be more generous toward God? We also see in verse 1 that it's the leaders specifically who lived there first, and then the rest of the people followed suit. These leaders used their influence to establish God's city. In other words, they led by example. They knew that people needed to move into Jerusalem, so they were the first to go do it. Notably, they did not say, hey, listen, all Israel, we're your leaders, you're our underlings, go do the unpleasant job that we don't want to do, we don't want to do that, we're entitled, you you go do that for us. They didn't do that, no. They were the first to go, and they gave up their inheritance to influence God's city. They led the way. And these leaders would have had the most to lose. Since they're the heads of the family's households, they're the ones who primarily own the inheritance. They gave up the most out of everyone. That's the call to leadership that God invites you and I into in whatever capacities we do lead. So for those of us in various leadership capacities, maybe you're a teacher at a school or a teacher in another setting, maybe you're a parent Maybe you're a boss or a manager. Maybe you're an elder at this church. One way to apply this text is to not ask those who follow us to do something we personally wouldn't be willing to do. Rather, if we want people to do something, let's start doing it ourselves. Let's lead by example and let's invite others in to do that with us like these Israelite leaders did for them, especially in the lowly and the unpleasant work. Now, this is true no matter how much of a formal leadership you have. You don't need to have like a title to be a leader in the strict sense of the word. After all, if we're Christians, we all want to influence or in other words, if you will, lead others to love Jesus better, right? Jesus gives us an example of how to lead in Matthew chapter 20. This will be on our screens here. Matthew 20 verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that's the authorities, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, that's Jesus' title for himself, even as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That example right there, whether your leadership goes as far as training someone how to make a coffee or as far as leading the entire city of Jerusalem, that is how God's people are called to lead. This text also tells us that 10% of the people moved into Jerusalem. Not everyone fit in the city. Most of the people, 90% of them, did stay in their towns. And those who were selected were selected by a random process, casting lots. It would effectively be likened to like rolling dice. So that's how people got brought in to the city. But verse 2 elaborates a little bit. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Those who moved did so willingly. It wasn't reluctant. 
This is exactly in line with our New Testament call to giving. In 2 Corinthians, this will also be on our screen, chapter 9, verse 7, Paul tells us, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is not primarily concerned with how much you give or what exactly you give, but your heart. Isn't that the whole message of the gospel in Christianity? God cares about our hearts, less so the actual work that we do, the work that we do is motivated by what God does in our hearts anyway. God is concerned about what you've decided in your heart. He loves a cheerful giver, a willing giver. And so that's a calling for us to say, I'll do this because I want to do it for God, not I'll do this because I'm supposed to. You know, that, that isn't excellent leadership. That isn't excellent willingness. That's not the calling here. The calling here is not to just grate your teeth and keep going. The call is to love God with your heart and offer what it is you're willing to offer cheerfully. And so, verse 2 says, because these people did that, they blessed them as they should have. Our text this morning is mostly about the people who moved to Jerusalem, but here we see that those who sent them really did have a role to play. They blessed the people who moved. We don't know exactly what form this blessing took. Maybe it was money, some financial help to get them started in Jerusalem. Maybe it was prayer, encouragement, what have you. So, although this is not mostly what the text is about, I do want to mention, as an aside, that there is a particular glory to these people who blessed them, to people who lead a, a faithful, quiet life, perhaps we might say today. Maybe without moving halfway across the world, doing cross-cultural missions or what have you, some of us need to do that, definitely. Otherwise, people aren't going to hear the gospel. But not everybody is going to move across the world. Not everybody was called to move to Jerusalem. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this will also be on your screen, says this, verses 11 and 12. Paul encourages the Thessalonians, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Those who moved to Jerusalem were not the only faithful people. Those who stayed put were just as faithful to do what God called them to do. Neither calling is better, per se. Now, those who go are just as faithful as those who stayed back. Maybe you personally have been made to feel like your calling is, is less than a calling of people who might be called to go do something more, quote-unquote, flashy for God. I don't know how we might articulate that. But frankly, language of flashy aside, that might be awesome that your calling is that, that that's what you're posting in life is about. Leading a quiet and faithful life is a totally glorious and valid calling. Part of that calling is going to look like blessing others to send them, like we see in verse 2. But that's not the only reason it's glorious. It's glorious in and of itself because God made that calling for you, and you get to glorify God in that for those of you who are called to go somewhere, you should be faithful to obey that call if God puts that on your heart. And you should consider, we should all consider, if God is calling us to give something up like that and maybe even pack up our bags and go share the gospel somewhere far away. Some of us will need to do that. But both callings are just as godly. Let's keep moving into verse 3. Read this with me here. The first sentence of verse 3 says, These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. 
So this sentence, in a lot of ways, is the purpose statement of the whole chapter. Verses 3 to 24 describes those chiefs and their families. And then verses 25 to 36 with the various villages is a bit of like a, a side note telling us where the rest of the people lived. But all the people in this list that are named are chiefs. And it is significant that this list specifically contains chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. So the chiefs, those are leaders of families. But not only that, we have chiefs of the province. The province is the geographical area consisting of Benjamin and Judah, which we see in that last paragraph. That's the areas of Benjamin and Judah. So this list in Nehemiah 11 is talking only about people in official leadership in the geographical property of those two tribes. But there were some people from other tribes there. First Chronicles 9 does tell us that. There were other people from other tribes who did move to Jerusalem. But this particular list is not concerned about the other tribes because, and we're going to do a little historical recap, like a 30-second version of the divide between the north and south of Israel. But there were 10 tribes, that's the northern kingdom, who disassociated themselves from Israel. And so they decided to forego God's promises. Now, if you're not familiar with that, here's a quick summary. This man, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, he had 12 sons. Each of those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. For a while, they were unified. But then after Solomon died, the Israelites could not maintain unity. There was conflict and there was a split. Only two tribes remained faithful to the rightful king that God appointed. Those were Judah and Benjamin, those who are described in this text here. The rest of the ten tribes refused to follow the rightful king. They disobeyed, disassociated themselves from God and from his people. If you want to read about that, that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 until chapter 11, verse 17. It spells all of that out if you're curious to read more about it. But the point for our purposes here in Nehemiah 11 is that Judah and Benjamin, that is the southern kingdom of Israel, becomes the nucleus of God's promises after that point. Now that's why, for example, Jesus comes from the line of Judah in Matthew 1 verse 1 because they remained God's people. That's also why Paul was proud to be a Benjamite of all tribes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 5 because they remained in relationship with God. So we have examples of New Testament people connecting themselves to God's active covenant people, Judah and Benjamin. Nehemiah has the same motive here. He is demonstrating that these Jews who are in this holy city really are God's holy people. There were other people that moved there, but this list isn't concerned to record them. This list is concerned to show that th these are the people of promise and Jerusalem is a city of promise. So, all that to say, this list gives us the chiefs of the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, who moved from their inherited homeland to Jerusalem. Let's keep going in verse 3. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property and in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So Judah, that is the southern kingdom, regions including the territories of both Judah and Benjamin, and these are the nine out of ten who stayed in their inherited homeland, including Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. That is everybody. Everybody else stayed put. They remained in their homeland. Verse 4, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. And so 
Naturally, if this list consists of the chiefs of the land, and the land is that of Judah and Benjamin, naturally the only people who are chiefs in that land are going to be people from Judah and Benjamin. Okay, let's continue on in verse 4. Of the sons of Judah, now we're getting to the names, Athiah the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, the sons of Perez, and Messiah the son of Baruch, the son of Colhazeth, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, son of Joirib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. Verse 6, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. So this paragraph here is the Judean chiefs, Athiah in verse 4, Messiah in verse 5, and how many people came with them. Verse 4 gives us the line of Perez with his descendant, Athiah. Verse 5 gives a separate family line of an unnamed Shilonite with his descendant, Messiah. And then in verse 6, it's only the sons of Perez, curiously, who are numbered, not the sons of the Shilonite in verse 5. So for some reason, this second family descending from the so-called Shilonites seems to be associated with the family of Perez. Maybe they've been absorbed by that family, maybe by adoption or some other agreement. This text isn't concerned to tell us all of those details. But what we do know is the descendants of Judah who moved into Jerusalem are numbered here at 468 people. Athiah in verse 4, Messiah in verse 5 are the two chiefs named, and they're both numbered with the sons of Perez in verse 6. But one last thing to note about verse 6 is that at the end, they're described as valiant men. So this Hebrew word for valiant, it does carry military overtones as valiant does in English. So these men were capable of fighting, and they needed to be. We read in Nehemiah chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 4 several weeks ago, where that chapter describes opposers who actually planned attacks, physical attacks, on the builders of the wall. So much so that in chapter 4, those who carried supplies did so while holding their supplies in one hand and their weapon in the other, if you remember that. And the builders who worked on the wall with their hands kept their swords strapped to their side in verse 17 of chapter 4. So there was opposition, and they needed people who could fight to defend the city from attacks. Those are the chiefs from Judah and their families. Let's move into verse 7. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. And so of the tribe of Benjamin, we have Salu, verse 7, and his brothers, verse 8. They were the chiefs, as verse 3 tells us at the beginning. Their combined family is 928 people. Now, something to point out here, this number is about double that of the sons of Judah in verse 6, which was 468. That means twice as many Benjamites came back as sons of Judah. We're not exactly sure why. That'll become relevant as we talk about the last piece of this chapter, but for now, let's just note double the Benjamites came as Judeans. Verse 9 mentions two of their leaders in particular. Read this with me in verse 9. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hesanua, was second over the city. Now, keeping in mind verse 3, that already we're only talking about chiefs, this whole list is already chiefs, in other words, leaders. But here in verse 9, these overseers are over the chiefs. An overseer, that's a different word for chief. Overseer is used a few times in our uh, chapter this morning. So these men in verse 9, Joel and Judah, are leaders over the chiefs in Jerusalem. 
Now, the exact nature and nuances of that, how that leadership worked out, they're not really articulated here. That doesn't seem to be the point of the text. But it does, at the very least, show that there were overseers over the chiefs and the people of Jerusalem. Now, one takeaway for our purposes from these verses is this, that God's kingdom, at least here on earth, does have leadership structures. There are some people whom God has appointed to lead and some people whom God has appointed to follow those leaders. And I do want to recognize that this can be a really sensitive topic for many of us. Here's a heartbreaking reality that many of us have experienced leadership done very poorly, both inside and outside the church. And so, words like submission and authority can have actually very hurtful effects on us. They can reopen deep, old, and recurring wounds for us. That is a heartbreaking reality. It ought not be, but that's not shame on you. That's shame on the world that did that to you. But our church has some work to do on reversing that reality, don't we? So that words like authority and submission, rather than being painful for us, can actually be reminders. I mean, what a, what a great world this would be. It could be reminders of Jesus' goodness and perfect authority over us. Now, I don't think we are there yet, but I'm encouraged because I think that is starting to happen more than it's happened before, in particular at our summit meetings that we have sometimes on Sundays at 4 p.m. People have been pretty transparent about ways they've been hurt by leadership in the past. And people are even expressing ways that they think the elders could improve at pastoring them and caring for them. And now as long as this is done in love, humility, respect, and gentleness with Christian hearts, that's a really good thing. In the case of our church, there's a two-way street toward harmony between both leaders and followers, or in our case, elders and members. As the elders listen and pray and make moves to continually shepherd us better and better, and as we, the membership, improve at trusting them and following them better and better while they do that, we're going to get closer and closer to reflecting the way that Jesus leads the church and the church follows Jesus. That's worth attaining, my friends. Let's keep moving toward that. I think we're already on our way. In the next paragraph, starting in verse 10, we have the priests who moved to Jerusalem. Read this with me in verse 10. Of the priests, Jediah the son of Joirib, Jachin, Sariah the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshalam, son of Zadok, son of Merioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. I'll stop there for a moment. These verses are describing those who did, quote, the work of the house. So the house is just the temple. It's another way to say the temple. And these are the priests who did work on the temple. That's a pretty general phrase. It might refer to temple maintenance, cleaning, general temple needs. But the first names of the priests in verse 10 are Jediah, the son of Joirib, Jachin, and Sariah. And then in verse 12, we have their brothers, who are the ones who did the temple work. That clump of people in verse 11 is connected to this person, Ahitab, who was ruler of the house of God. What does that mean? Well, that means he was the high priest. A similar phrase is used to describe the high priest in another passage of the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 31, verses 10 and 13. So these guys are all connected to the high priest at the time. In the same way that the genealogies served several weeks ago to connect God's present people to God's 
older people to show that they were people indeed of the promise, so Nehemiah is doing the same thing here. He's connecting these priests to the priests of old. In fact, the high priest of old. This city is a continuation of what it was before. This priesthood is a continuation of what it was before. The holy priesthood in the holy city. There were 822 priests in this clan. Now let's move on to the next sentence of verse 12. And Adiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pasher, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. So this man, Adiah, and his brothers, they don't have a specific job apart from just being heads of priestly houses, and they had 242 in their clan. Let's keep moving. And Amasiah excuse me, Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Asai, son of Meshaloth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. So these brothers of Amashai were priests, but also men of valor. So these priests also like doubled up as warriors, apparently, in addition to their regular priestly duties. Now, this was not typical for priests. This was not typical from anyone descending from Levi. We know that from Numbers chapter 1, verse 47 to 49. The Levites are not numbered among warriors typically in the Old Testament. But maybe the reason that these priests needed to be valiant, needed to be warriors, is because of the exceeding need for military protection. And so these priests were asked to step outside their normal line of duty to serve in this way. I would imagine on a temporary basis. It doesn't say that in the text, but I would imagine that that's true. Now, maybe this can serve to us today as a reminder that we aren't always going to do things that feel natural per se, or even actually that feel great for us. Sometimes we're just called in some seasons of life to do things because it's needed and we're available to do it and we are willing to do it. And that's okay. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not always a long-term solution. Like I mentioned, I doubt the priests long-term took up arms. They had other things to do. They were the center of the priesthood for all of Jerusalem for crying out loud. So I don't, I don't know that, but I would imagine that. If you find yourself, though, in a similar situation, I think it makes sense to do it faithfully, but also in the meanwhile to pray about, Lord, how might I spend my time better? How might I leverage the gifts that you've given me better to serve your kingdom? I think that's a worthwhile prayer, and it's worthwhile to see how you can pivot so that you could do things that more fit your gifts. But my point is, even when we can't, like these priests, we can still serve God faithfully and glorify Him in whatever we do. That's true for us as much as it's true for them. We can glorify God in, quote, whatever we do, 1 Corinthians tells us. There were 128 priests in that family. Let's keep moving. Their overseer, this is verse 14, was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolin. So Zabdiel is the overseer of these priests, who themselves are chiefs. Verse 3 tells us that all these people are, are chiefs. But the total priests between combined families that are living in Jerusalem is 1,192, about 1,200. That's almost as many people as all of the sons of Judah and Benjamin combined who are living in the city in the earlier paragraphs. Why is that? That's because priests were much needed in the city of Jerusalem. These priests make up the whole priesthood of the entire nation of Israelites, both inside and outside the city. 
everyone from both inside and outside would come to the temple in Jerusalem, for example, to make offerings for sin or to offer offerings for sin for the priests to sacrifice for them. The people weren't allowed to sacrifice their own things. The priests would do that on behalf of the people. And so all of Israel had that need. Everybody sinned. But in addition, priests were the primary teachers of the Bible. They were also the biblical counselors, if you will. Malachi 2 talks about that, of God's people, helping people, counseling people to love God's commandments better and to obey them better. So they would have wanted a concentration of priests in Jerusalem so that Jerusalem could be the center of godly teaching and godly living. They needed many priests in Jerusalem. It was quite a task for quite a large number of people. Moving into verse 15, now we're in the Levites. And of the Levites, Shemaiah the son of Hasub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni. We have Shemaiah, the chief of the province, and he brought all of his family. Let's move into verse 16. Shabbatai and Josabad of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. So these two guys, Shabbatai and Josabad, were, quote, of the chiefs of the Levites. So among the Levite chiefs, these two Levite chiefs were responsible for managing the outside work of the temple. Again, outside work is a bit vague. It might refer to taking things from outside Jerusalem, bringing them inside, like tithes, monies, sacrifices, maybe caring for the structure itself of the temple. But the point is, this was their specific task, these two guys, outside work of the temple. They had a job that they were appointed to. The beginning of verse 17 reads this, And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers. We'll stop there for a moment. These guys were responsible for giving thanks to God and singing songs to God. That's kind of a cool job. I'd be bad at that job, but that's a cool job. I just can't sing very well. Anyway, if I were to sing, I'd be like the priests who are stepping out of line and like fighting. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Okay, these guys were responsible for giving thanks to God and singing praise to God. And they were descendants of Asaph. Now, Asaph was the chief of praising and thanking God in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Long ago, David appointed him. And now we see that his descendants have the same role, connecting the old people of Israel, the chosen people, to the current people. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Asaph did this before. His children are doing this now. So, Bakbukiah uh, he's the second in rank, so that would make it seem like Mataniah would be the first. We don't know, again, all the nuances of these leadership appointments, but this is what we have here. We do see later in chapter 12, verse 8, Mataniah with his brothers is in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. So their role was to give, to give thanks and to sing praises to God. And then finally, we have our last Levite chief, and Abda the son of Shammah, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun. And then in verse 8, we have our summary here. In verse 18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. Not many Levites, way fewer than ideal. I mean, we saw that there were about 1,200 priests, right? But there's only around 300 Levites. That's a little backwards. If you remember, the Levites were actually supposed to be... Um, supported by tithes of the people, so the people would give the Levites 10%, right? But then the Levites had to give, of their 10%, a 10% for the priests, 
who were Levites but were specifically appointed as priests. We see that in Numbers chapter 18, verse 26 and 28. So in my mind, that would imply around a 1 to 10 ratio, ideally, for Levites to priests. 10 Levites for every one priest. But here we actually have kind of the opposite. Apparently, they made it work because the temple happened. But this temple would have been short-staffed. These Levites would have needed to work really hard to maintain God's house. Now, that's not ideal. Now, Ezra in particular needed to go recruit a bunch of Levites earlier. Maybe they went to go do some more recruiting for Levites. But there are going to be times that hands are shy and we're just going to need more help. People are going to need for a season to work hard. That's not necessarily bad, but it isn't ideal, is it? And so I think we should be faithful to admit, hey, I'm tired. Maybe the Levites had to do that. Maybe we need to do that as well. But we can still be faithful to work hard and do the Lord's work so that he can be glorified and his kingdom can be built. And again, the holy city. What makes this place a holy city is that God's holy people live inside of it. Chapter 8, the Bible came to them. Chapter 9, they confessed their sin. Chapter 10, they signed a covenant in the city. And now in chapter 11, the leaders have set a holy example to the rest of the people in the city. It was a holy city. Verse 19, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. Akub and Talman, they were the chiefs of the gatekeeping family. And then we have a note in verse 20 that the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. Now we've seen that before. Now, chapter 11 is a list of chiefs and their families who moved. The rest of the people stayed put in their inheritance. We've talked about that. Moving into verse 21, but the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were over the temple servants. So they lived outside of the city of Jerusalem on Ophel, probably because many of them were not native Israelites. We talked about that in Nehemiah 7. But nonetheless, Ziha and Gishba were still appointed leadership positions over the rest of the temple servants. And now in verse 22, we see that the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. So Uzi was the overseer of all the Levites, including the Levite chiefs mentioned earlier. And the work of the house of God, that just describes the Levites' primary task, temple services. So he was the overseer of all the Levites who did temple services. But then verse 23 and 24 is a bit of a change of pace, and it's a little peculiar. Verse 23 reads this. Let's read these verses together. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pathahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. So what we have going on here is the Persian king, that would be Artaxerxes at this time, is commanding that the singers get paid daily. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 21 and 24, we see described a decree from Artaxerxes that whatever Ezra tells you to do, you need to obey him. That's the king Artaxerxes. Ezra was apparently in good relationship with the king. So that decree would include giving tithes to the Levites and portions to the singers. And apparently, that decree was still in effect. And then in verse 24, we see that the Jewish people had a representative with the Persian king, Pethahiah. 
the Persian government was still officially supporting these endeavors in Jerusalem. God's people still were not totally independent yet, were they? They needed rules from secular authorities from Persia in order to maintain God's commands. God had already commanded them to support their Levites, didn't He? That was Numbers 18.21. But the reason given here, given here for their support is not God's law. It's not obedience to God's law. It's Persian influence. In this case, the Persian influence was in accordance with God's law, so that's helpful. But the point I'm making is that they didn't seem to be obeying God for God's sake, but rather because the Persian king required it. That's worth noticing, I think, because when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem just two chapters later, in chapter 13, verse 10, he finds that this command specifically has been disobeyed. The city is not holy for long. Next, in verses 25 to 36, we have the surrounding regions of Judah and Benjamin. These are the villages that lost 10% of their residents to Jerusalem. I'll read the paragraph here now. Verse 25, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Cariath Arba and its villages, and in Debon and its villages, and in Jaxbazil and its villages, and in Jeshua and Maladah and Beth Pelet, in Hazar Shul, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mekanah and its villages, in Emrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adulam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnon. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Rama, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ano, the Valley of Craftsmen. So these are the inheritances that God promised Judah in Joshua chapter 15 and Benjamin in Joshua chapter 18, verses 11 to 28. They lived where God promised they would. God was true to his word. And then the last verse is a little bookkeeping note. Verse 36, and certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Many years prior in Joshua chapter 21, the different clans of Levites were assigned to live in different towns owned by the other 11 tribes of Israel, in the 11 tribes of Israel's inheritance. That's where the Levites would live. They were supported by tithes and all that stuff. And so, in Nehemiah 11, we see here that the reason for redistribution, excuse me, I'm conjecturing, uh, we don't have it explicitly written, that I think the reason that they're being redistributed is because more Benjamites, if you remember, came than Judeans. And since it didn't make sense to burden, I think this is what happened here, it didn't make sense to burden the Judeans proportionally more than the Benjamites. The Benjamites had more resources, right? They redistributed from what was originally allotted Judah and gave some excess, certain divisions, it says, to Benjamin. I think that's what happened here. Now, before we finish this morning, I want us to notice one more thing in this last paragraph. I want us to look at verse 25. It says, some of the people, if you see where I'm reading, some of the people of Judah lived in these villages. So that word lived, hold your finger there. But then in verse 30, the very last sentence of verse 30 says, so they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hanan. We have lived and encamped. 
But, so these are two different words, aren't they? In Hebrew, there are two different words. Literally, lived means like to dwell, to live, to, to stay put. But encamped does mean to, to pitch a tent, to camp. It, one of them's permanent, one of them's not. And it's not the case that verse 30 is describing a different area than verse 25. Verse 30 is a summary statement describing all of verse 25 to 29. So in the very same area, two different words are being used to describe the same event. What is going on? After all, they did build houses to live in. The book of Haggai talks about that. But we have a hint here, I think, that although they lived here, they were only camping. They were only passing through. This was not their permanent home. Yes, they built the city. Yes, it was holy, but this was not it. This wasn't their permanent dwelling place. This was temporary. After all, in just two chapters, the people became totally disobedient. So much for the holy city. In AD 70, furthermore, Jerusalem was destroyed. This Jerusalem that we're reading about right now. Although they did live there, they were only camping. And I think, my friends, the same goes for us. We live here on earth, yes. We build houses here on earth. We make homes. We make dwellings. But we're only encamping, aren't we? This isn't our permanent home. Advent, our hope is in an eternal home, an eternal Jerusalem. Without all these problems that we've described that they had in Jerusalem that we have here today, our hope is in a better place. We're only camping here. If our hope is in a man-made city with leaders who are merely human, our hope will be as destroyed as Jerusalem was in AD 70. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus speaks to the temporariness of this temple. This will be on your screens. Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Nehemiah did a great job, teacher. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What was hinted here in Nehemiah 11 was described in Mark 13. It was predicted that it wouldn't last, and it did not last. In John 2, Jesus elaborates. This will also be in your screen, starting in verse 19. Jesus answered them, these are the Pharisees, the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Imagine saying that to the Jews that just built the temple. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. I might be mad if I worked on the temple that hard, you know. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is Jesus, Jesus' body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple cannot be hope for the Israelites because it was destroyed. Our, our human societies, our, our human churches can't be our hope. In their own right, they can serve to point us to that hope, but they themselves cannot be that hope. Jesus is the hope of the Israelites and the hope of you and the hope of me. The holy city did not last. First, it lost its holiness in chapter 13, and then it lost its existence in AD 70. 
It lost its holiness. Why? Because in 2 Chronicles 6.36, it says this, there is no one who does not sin. In other words, everybody sins. We're not that holy. So left on our own, we're unholy, aren't we? Now, they were God's holy people, and so are we, in, in that we're set apart for Him. He has a plan for us. He's promised to save us, yes, but they were sinful. And on their own, they were not perfectly holy as they were commanded to be in Leviticus 11.44, where God said, be holy for I am holy. Boy, I think we fall short of God's holiness, don't we? Perfect holiness. No one here is perfect. But when Jesus died on that cross, He took our unholiness upon Himself, and He was punished for it. And what's more, He put His holiness upon ourselves and made us holy like He is. If we believe that Jesus did that for us, that's faith. If we have faith in what Jesus did for us, we have faith in Christ, then actually through Him, we have obeyed the command, be holy for I am holy, because in God's eyes, we really do obey. Because in God's eyes, we have God's holiness that Jesus gave to us. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that is why we take communion. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And about the cup, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. He was broken for us. He was poured out for us to make us holy. Now, if you reject this, if you refuse to believe this, if you refuse to exercise faith in Jesus, then you won't be made holy and you won't experience that redemption from unholiness to holiness. It will prove very badly for you as you experience punishment for that. So I encourage you to believe in Jesus for your holiness, the holiness that Jesus offers to give to you. But not only that, there's not just bad news to get away from. You'll get to enjoy God eternally. Jesus is the God who is better than all the human leaders. All of the human leaders in Nehemiah 11, all the human leaders who might have hurt you in your life, the human leaders of our church, every church, whatever, Jesus is better than them. When they fail, and they will, whoever they are, if they're not Jesus, Jesus remains your perfect leader for all of your days. And he's the perfect leader who became a servant. He came here to die for you. That's a man worth putting your faith in. That's what his love for you looks like. He's worth following. You'll get him. And in heaven, we're not going to have any more questions about how leadership works and authority structures and confusion and hurts. We're not going to have any more of that. God's just going to be the monarch, and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be awesome. There will be no more sin there at all. Revelation 21, 27. And at that point, we really will be a holy people in a holy city, won't we? Eternally, and eternally worshiping Jesus. There will be no getting up, moving, and giving up our inheritances to, to go on mission. We will have received our eternal inheritance, Jesus himself. And Jesus himself is our hope, who we get for eternity. So we're going to take communion now to celebrate that Jesus did that for us. The way that we do that is we'll get up from our seats, form two lines, grab the bread and the cup, loop back around, and then come back to your seat.
Uh, when we call you up, you're welcome to do that at any time. You don't have to wait for the people in front of you or whatever. I do want to mention that this is only for believers who have put their faith in Jesus, who actively do hope for Jesus, because that's who this is relevant for. So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to abstain from this, but perhaps to go pray with us in the back. I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray for anybody, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, You can also remain in your seat and think and pray about what you're hearing, because we are really glad that you're here. We hope this is a place where you can explore faith. But for those of us who have received Jesus, who have received His holiness, This is a time to celebrate that he's accomplished that for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us a holy people. Thank you for making a holy city, God. Thank you that we get to dwell in that holy city eternally. Thank you that we're not just going to camp there. We're camping here, but we're not camping there. We will dwell there eternally and live there, God. And as we wait... Lord, there are various functions in Nehemiah 11 that we saw various people had. Some were leaders, some were leaders above leaders, some were, had certain functions, some had others, God. I pray that we would be faithful to seek out what, what gifts you have given us, God, to see how we can invest in your eternal kingdom, Lord. Help us to leverage our gifts as well as we can. Thank you for the diversity of your kingdom, God. Thank you for the diversity of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 11. Thank you for the diversity that we have here in various ministry appointments of various types, God. Help us to carry those out faithfully. Help us, each other, to support one another in those callings and in those gifts, God. But for now, we thank you for making us holy. And God, as we take communion as we crush the bread in between our teeth and as we swallow the the juice, I pray that we would think about how you, Jesus, were crushed for our transgressions and your blood was poured out to forgive us. I pray that that would be chief on our minds as we celebrate communion now, God. Thank you for doing that for us. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Thank you for making us that way. In your name we pray, amen.